So this is a special day, Joe. Are we recording? We're, we're recording now, and, and I'm not engineering anything. I'm not looking at waveforms. I'm just I'm looking at you. I'm just thinking about what I'm thinking about. Mm, interesting. We are in, we're not in Oral Argument World Headquarters. Mm. We're in our alternate secret location. No wonder it looks so different. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, you were going to say, I like what you've done with the place. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and we have a fabulous engineer, Lucas Carver, today. Hooray! So thanks to Lucas. I, any other opening remarks? Not for me. I need to drink more of this coffee. <laughs> well, we don't really have any time for you to get more, so. Are we out of time? This is the problem to, of doing, drink up. this is the problem of doing pre-roll as pre-roll, is that you have to keep rolling because you're in the middle of the roll. So here's how the listeners will know that we really ran out of gas because we didn't record anything at the end that was better than this. If you're hearing this, this is as good as it got today. Oh, because we didn't. Go back later and decide, oh my God, we totally need to redo the we've never done. We've never done that, though. That's true. We never have. You're but right. I have to say, based on like what I'm hearing myself say and how the words are coming out, like today would be the day to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, uh, you just got to go with, uh, you got to be real. You got to mm. just go with what you got. Authenticity. Um, it, has, it has something to commend it, I think. All right. All right. Let's try to get, let's try to get Richard on the horn, shall we? Wonderful. So Richard, uh, just to get uh, one thing out of the way, um, how do you pronounce your family name? Oh, yeah, I know this has been a uh, fixation for you guys lately as adjudicating these, uh, these name debates. <laughs> uh, and it's nice of you to ask also because I, I live with the, the great burden of having my name routinely mispronounced in all kinds of uh, amusing ways. So it's Ray. <sighs> this is... So you can exchange your five dollars now, I guess. Who who got who had the better bet there? Well, we were saying in pre-roll that like, you know, I, I've read your stuff for years now and have seen your name and, and it was just occurred to me that I, I haven't heard it pronounced or if I have, I've forgotten it, but you know, I, I read your stuff. And, um, and so it's, it's one of these, like, you know, people who like read a lot, but pronounce things funny. Yeah. Well, you know, there is a, um, it, I tried to turn it into an asset uh, rather than a source of confusion, um, with this, uh, this blog that I have, um, raised judicata. This ah. was my big. This was my big clue, actually, that that you pronounced yeah. it Ray. Is because it's R. Of course, it's it's R E apostrophe S because it's your name, not res judicata, as in you know the preclusion principle. But um, right. but that was my big clue. Yeah, that would be a clue. I didn't know. I, I I felt like you had another website a while back that was called something different. Well, I'm on Profs now, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, raised. Uh, hopefully, it's raised judicata. Yeah. Well, I think our work here is done. So we, <laughs> we've, we've cleared up the, the, extremely, uh, the, the, the extremely mysterious fact. We've now put it on the record, and uh, I think we should all declare victory. And I mean, So, so we're going to talk about the Marx rule Great. Yes. today. And, and the and Hughes this, case. This amazing paper that you have. And, and it's like, so, so you wrote this paper, and then they took cert, right? Yeah, well, um, that's mostly true. Um, I... Uh, I had been working on the paper in a kind of a backburner way for quite a while, had not uh, gotten the paper in what I thought of as um, cir- really widely circulable shape, and then, and then CERT happened. Uh, and so okay. I kind of, I uh, was like, oh my goodness, and so raced to, uh, to kind of put some touches on it so that I could uh, share it a little more widely. Uh, but basically, yeah, I mean, I've been working on the paper for quite a while. And this problem, the problem of what to do when there isn't a uh, a majority opinion for the Supreme Court, um, is you know it it looks like other people have occasionally tried to in the literature tried to do something um, productive with it. Adam Steinman, uh, Brian Garner's new book on precedent, um, 
In fact, Adam uh, Steinman posted something new that, that I just saw come across the SSRN email today. Um, yeah, uh, by about, conditionals, right? Yeah, the by yeah. conditionals, both you know, if A, then B, and that. if not A, then not B. Oh, I wanted to go in that direction with it. So can I just set up a problem and just ask you how this shakes out? Sure. Because I want to take it out of the Supreme Court for just a second. So the, as I understand the problem uh, that, that Marx is trying to solve, suppose that we have a court which is faced with deciding whether, oh, I don't know, wh- whether a manufacturer should be held liable for um, injuries to a consumer from its products. And you have a few members of the court who write that um, for reasons of um, um, cost spreading and enterprise risk and cheapest cost avoider, et cetera, et cetera, we're going to apply strict liability to any, uh, to any manufacturer um, uh, that, uh, whose product causes uh, injury to a consumer when you know, used in the normal way or something. You might qualify it. And, then, uh, and so th- their reasons sound in kind of cost spreading and cheapest cost avoider. And then you have a group who say, no, that's not right. Uh, we're going to find liability only when uh, the manufacturer was negligent in the production of the particular product that the consumer used, right? So if you can show that there was a lack of care. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there is, um, maybe there's another group of judges so that we don't have neither of those two uh, forms a majority, but, but if you combine the, those two groups, they would form a majority. But there's a third group, which is maybe another three judges out of nine, who would say that, we actually think negligence is the wrong standard because, you know, oftentimes uh, we're all negligent some of the time, something like that. And so we think that liability should be paid, uh, that li- liability should be paid. They'm already wanting to edit stuff out, but we're not going to do it. Uh, that liability will be found um, it, uh, only when the manufacturer has committed a moral wrong. When the manufacturers like either lack standards or affirmative, you know, cost cutting decisions or something else. Uh, amount to a grievous moral wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got like three different like reasons why you would find a manufacturer liable. And then along comes another case where someone's injured by a, by a product and we've got to figure out what to do. I've got a question yeah. before Richard uh, tells us how to think about it, which is, um, was there an agreement among all nine judges that, that there either is or isn't liability in this case? I mean, it sounds like what you said from the first group of three, that they would be willing to find liability basically on any set of facts that involve that manufacturer and their product and someone getting hurt. Right. Because they don't have a, either a negligence rule to apply or a reckless disregard rule of some kind to apply. Mm-hmm. So, Or maybe you say it has to even be more than reckless disregard. It has to be some sort of um, a more affirmatively condemnable a state of affairs. But right. but did, did you tell us how it came out? Like, no. does it matter for your hypo how it comes out in I, the first case? I didn't. But of course, for some of some of some of the models that Richard looks at, it does matter, like who's in the where the majority was and whether you were a majority. Like if there's or liability center. or not. Yeah, Because yeah, right, I can exactly. imagine the, yeah. the strict liability folks saying definitely liability. I can imagine the negligence folks saying liability because negligence in this case. And I can right. imagine the final group of three saying no liability because even though there might be negligence here, there isn't that kind of willful, horrendous stuff here. Right. Or some, yeah, some egregious moral act or something like that. Yeah, uh, I got in, in Richard's way. So he's now going no, to. Right. So, so then another case comes along and maybe in this case there's, there's negligence. You could prove negligence. You know, what result? That's, that's kind of the question, right? That Marx is trying to answer. And, and, and one answer would be, well, there were six six justices who believe that if there was negligence, there should be liability. Mm-hmm. And so therefore the rule that a lower court is bound to apply. And here we can talk about like what you're bound to do and what precedent really is and all of that. But, uh, is, right. you know, is, is the rule like that, that six justices basically agreed to, at least in these circumstances, there should be liability, right? 
Well, I think I would disagree. I think uh, with with the last thing you said, if it's supposed to be an inference based on the hypo you said at the outset. So, so I, if I understand the hypo, there's basically three different rules. There happens to be outcome convergence among a majority for a judgment in favor of liability. And so, under my uh, my analysis, I'd be inclined to say that there's been no precedential rule set. There's been a, a judgment supported by a majority, but there's been no agreement. It sounds like either on a rationale or on a rule of decision by a majority. And so I would say that there's the best rule for the Supreme Court, at least, is there's no presidential rule established. Now, at the very end of your question there, right before you uh, pass it back to me, um, the way you put it was interesting. You said they agree that at least when there's negligence. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, th there should it. be yeah. liability. Now, that, right. I think that's an intuition that underlies a lot of commentary on right. these kinds of cases. And my whole point is to put pressure on that inference and to say, well, actually, if there truly were agreement on that proposition, namely, at least there should be liability when negligence, then it would seem to me that it would not be um, unrealistic uh, or, or inappropriate in any way to kind of put the onus on the judges to write an opinion or, or even if not in the form of majority opinion, express the fact that they have come to that agreement on a second best option, basically. And, and part of the reason I want to get too far down into this uh, line of thought, but just to give a taste of why I think that, it's possible to me that the the jurists, I think your hypo is supposed to not be to the Supreme Court initially, but whoever it is in your hypothetical, it's possible that the people with the ostensibly broader rule, in this case, the strict liability rule, actually would, would not be happy if people started applying a negligence standard. Right. Because it could be that the negligence standard will be counterproductive in a lot of ways, even though it would be true, I think in your hypothetical, that whenever the negligence people would find liability, so too the strict liability people. Yeah, and I think you know, there's one kind of maybe mistake. Uh, I think I think you see it as a mistake, and and I think I do as well. That that runs through a lot of these uh, intuitions that that you push back against, and that's you know a lot of people say that like you know based on premises A, uh, that should imply X, where X is a judgment, and and so if we have um, if A implies X and, and premises B imply X, then certainly premises A and B together imply X. Mm. But, but maybe one way of seeing the problem there is that that's not what's going on with legal judgment. Instead, we're saying premises A justify doing X, right? So if A justifies X and other people think B justifies X, uh, does that mean that both groups agree that A and B justifies X? And that's justifies is different than implies. And it also calls into question whether there are kind of hidden premises. And so you kind of hint at it uh, there about when you talked about like um, whether the presence of negligence is important. But you give some more striking examples in the paper that mirror some things I've talked about with my students when criticizing greater includes the lesser, right? So the, right. You know, the, the greater power to, um, to close down a store includes the lesser power to open it only to whites, right? Like, it, it, once you say it, you immediately realize there's a problem, right? Because, because the, what seems like the lesser power is not truly the lesser power. Because right. what's going on, like you, in order to believe that you have that power, you also have to believe you have the power to pick and choose, right? Right. And so I, in the paper, you say like, you know, how about a law which uh, ban capital, you know, so you get a certain number of judges who agree that capital punishment is unconstitutional and a certain other group of justices who think applying capital punishment to Christians should be unconstitutional. In some sense, like if, 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 you, if, if you just do the logical entailment, like then 
they believe, you know, anyone who's up for, uh, there's one group who believes anyone who's up for capital punishment, well, you should imply that, you strike that down, right? The A implies X. Uh, and there's another group who, yeah, but if that person is a Christian, then both groups agree that person shouldn't be executed. Right. And therefore there's a majority opinion. But there's a hidden premise there, right? That um, uh, Which maps into your negligence pr- problem versus strict liability from before, right? right? That we, we might think of those as being much more intimately uh, cl- close to one another. But in fact, for the individual justices involved, they could be just as far apart, right? Strict liability and negligence could be just as far apart in the operative sense as no capital punishment for anyone and no capital punishment for any Christians is, are far right. apart. Well, but, but the hidden premise is the law should distinguish between Christians and non-Christians. Right. It's not, you know, the 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 um... right. But we would find that out by by figuring out what the justices thought. And, and we can figure out what they thought by saying you should tell us what you think and not. And when you and when not five of you tell us something, we, we think we don't yet have a signal from you. Well, yeah, I don't want to get too far down the road right away because I think there's more setup to do. But I think the problem here is that every trying to extract what the rule is from a case is always an exercise in modeling salience. Right. Like. Everything cause everything justifies a judgment in some way, and, and an attempt to fashion a rule is an attempt to talk about what features are salient. But there are so many things that you take for granted that are not salient that that, that, mm. that you don't think of as salient. So, so one of those is that the person actually needs to have been prosecuted, right, <laughs> rather than just a random person off the street. Like you know, when we say what the rule is, we don't include well, it has to have been there has to have been a trial, it has to. Have been, there are all these things which actually feature into our reason that we don't state in the form of a rule. Right. They just go unstated. And future cases could put pressure on those unstated things by making them by taking them from subtext to text. Exactly. Yeah. The, the next case could raise that very concern. Well, oh my gosh, it looks like this person wasn't. It didn't have right. the, the kind of process that we think is important. That, which is why I started, and I, I, we can get back on track. But 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 by saying that, like once you understand that we're asking whether a whether premises a justify x rather than imply X, you realize that, you know, it, it maybe cues you into the fact that justification is more of an all things considered. Yeah. You know what I mean? What do you make of that, Richard, that justification versus imply? Yeah, I, have, I think that's a really, uh, a really interesting distinction. I, I have a lot of reactions to it. Um, so one possible reaction is that maybe um, not everything we care about in the law of precedent is justification. So there's a um, there's a common law, maybe tradition, that what the precedent consists of is a justification for a judgment. I'm actually skeptical that that is the uh, only or maybe even the best way to think about precedent. It could be that precedents are partially declaratory, independent of the justification for an outcome. Hmm. Uh, so you might think that you could have an agreement on a rule decision, even if there's divergence as to justification. Indeed, I think that's, that's uh, very uh, common. On the the more direct, uh, I think tilt of your of your comment, uh, Christian, which is really interesting. I think that when we assume that the greater and the lesser are comparable, to me that it doesn't even uh, necessarily challenging the greater lesser arguments in these context contexts don't necessarily require giving up on the idea that one is greater and one is lesser. Because it could be that they're just different. It could be that there is an objective sense of greater and lesser, and yet there's a difference between the two of them. Uh, even if even if we can kind of compare them under a single metric at the same time. And I guess there's one last straight thought. 
Um, when you talk about modeling salience, I think that's a really interesting idea because I, I took that line of inquiry to be putting pressure on the idea that we could ever have a formal press social rule decision right. that is self-contained. And so, so I guess, you know, I'm not sure you were going to flush it out this way, but you could imagine someone saying, once you can see that the presidential rules are kind of swimming in a, in a, in a, you know, fluid of context that leads all kinds of, um, premises that can later be challenged. You might think that that kind of, uh, puts pressure on the idea that you could ever have a declaratory presidential rule with majority support, because in any case, you're going to be kind of reading in these, these inferences. And so what's one more inference, namely one more inference of uh, you know, to infer that the people who have the greater rule would support the lesser rules. There's one more inference to tack on there. I'd have to think more about that, but I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of that, actually, um, because I think, I guess I have more confidence in the ability of the jurists, because they do this, this is, this is their job. Yeah. Uh, they're, quite, they're quite used to making these kinds of salience, uh, 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 salience-aware rules, I guess you might say. That, that if they do want to come together and form a, a rule decision that will be understandable in our legal community, they have the ability to do that uh, through, for example, majority decisions in a pretty effective way that wouldn't pose the same problems that I think Mark's analysis poses. I, I, I think that's right. But, but I think that the, the reason that, that the intentional formation of precedent, and you know, there's, if, we want to, if we want to lay down a rule that works in a lot of cases that, you know, that we can imagine that we can do that. Um, but, but the, re the reason that that is tends to be effective is precisely because all of the, um, the people doing that and the, and the audience for it, other judges and, and attorneys are part of kind of the same interpretive community. Right. And, exactly. and so, so right. what makes, you know, what, so, so what is it that, that what's the reason why, you know, in fact, things have so many hidden premises but we don't constantly run up against like, you know, you know, rules that are hard to apply even in easy cases is because like we've all kind of internalized those premises. There are a lot of kind of shared premises that we have. And, and it's, you know, my more general theory of law has to do with like acceptance of each other's models of, of, of law. And so mm -hmm. like it, the, the very fact that like I kind of know your premises and I kind of share them, that's kind of what makes this whole system run along so well. Right. We internalize mm -hmm. them. And so. I don't mean to overstate like how often it happens that the the hidden premise prevents like agreement or or um, or prevents right. like greater includes the lesser arguments from working. But I, but I do think it's there in every case. It's just oftentimes hidden right. by agreement. So it sounds like what you're, it sounds like what you're saying, Christian, is that you. I feel like your your observations are directed at least uh, somewhat, and maybe more so. Uh, to, to the question of how do we get in the situation of fragmented decisions to begin with? Yeah. Like how can there be 414 decisions at all anyway? Mm -hmm. and, that, and that once we know that, we'd sort of have a better bead on what to do about it. Right. Is that what you're... Yeah, yeah I mean... Because you could look at the 414 as sort of symptomatic of a, an area and a time where the people involved are having difficulty with one another sort of figuring out what to do with the shared premises that they, that they have. Well, one reason to engage um, with Richard's work is that you, you, you see that there are, more, there are more routes to that kind of disagreement than you may have thought. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking only for myself right now, like I, 
I always, you know, uh, before I at first encountered your argument, I, I, I thought, you know, the Marx rule is just a rule and it seems sensible. It's a sensible way to proceed. And I was totally persuaded by your article. It's one down. Yeah, no, I was, I, I and, and <laughs> like you made me, really, like, I don't think I approached the, you know, I don't think my like theoretical framework is exactly the same as yours and the way yeah. that you laid out these different, um, uh, the, the different kind of theories of Marx and how you knock them down may not be exactly the way I'd conceptualized it, but I, mm. but, but over the course of reading it, like I was, I was persuaded that, yeah, this is like, not only do I agree with Richard, but I think my overall jurisprudential theory like compels me to say, you, you know, this is exactly right. Um, and, and All so, right. Yeah. And, and so I, I uh, <laughs> and, and so now our work is done. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. Right. But I mean, I think Joe's right. Like the, the insight is to, um, how, how it is that fragmentation occurs in, in the beginning. Once that fragmentation has occurred, can you kind of repair it on a case-by-case -case basis by saying, well, it was fragmented, but in this case, these reasons come together into some kind of er reason that actually decides this case, right? And, uh, and, I, and I guess I kind of always lazily assumed that that was possible, if not in every case. And, and now I'm not nearly as sure. I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm convinced that maybe it would be better uh, not to think of it that way. But um, is that what you mean, Joe? I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm kind of reaching. I'm not all the way through this cup of coffee yet. So, <laughs> so now I'm wondering how Richard got interested in this problem to begin with, the Marx problem. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, um, I don't remember exactly when I first encountered the Marx rule, but I, I can never remember a time when I knew about it and was not um, just vehemently opposed to it. So, <laughs> at, so at some point, at, you know, uh, at some point I encountered this principle and just thought it was um, just totally misguided. And um, in different parts of my uh, professional experience, I'd encounter it. You know, what, what, once you see the rule, once you know what it is, you know, there's a lot of fragmented decisions out there. So you, you encounter it quite frequently. And every time I just thought it was uh, more and more uh, confusing uh, and, uh, and kind of counterproductive. So I'm, I'm not sure there's a, a particular moment, but I, I can I can say that I've been a hostile to it for a long time now. <laughs> no, there's a long um, time. Yeah. There's, there's a case that um, that when I think of fra uh, fragmented Supreme Court decision making, there's a particular pair of cases uh, not mentioned by you in your piece, and and pro and probably not not mentioned that often by anyone because most people don't really want to get anywhere near patent law uh, as uh, for reasons passing understanding. But um, are you going to bring up a patent case? It's yeah. So in these two cases, oh Aero Manufacturing A R O Aero Manufacturing against convertible replacement, and there and one is from 1961, and from one is from 1964. And they're and they're both. So not only they're patent cases, but they're ancient patent cases. They are, they are, well, for some value, the word ancient. Um, <laughs> and, and so they're 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 one of them is quite badly fragmented. Um, and what's interesting about it is r recently um, uh, the Supreme Court, in deciding some uh, a, a range of different patent infringement disputes, um, has had to talk about Arrow One and Arrow Two a, ah, few, a few times. Uh, and. Uh, one thing I've noticed about the recent Supreme Court and their engagement with patent law is that they are exceptionally uh, unanimous in their views. Like they're mm. unusual, they reach unusually frequent anonymity uh, in patent cases. Uh, and uh, I've got some reasons for thinking that why that might be happening, but that's not important. What's important is in this in this context of these recent decisions, most of which are are unanimous or nearly so. Um, they say, yeah, you know, Arrow, gosh, they were, those opinions were kind of complicated, but, you know, here are some of the things that were agreed on, it seems, and, 
And, uh, and when we focus on those parts of Arrow, then we can simply go forward and decide the case that's in front of us now and, and make sense out of it and whatever. So it seems like if you let enough time go by uh, uh-huh. a- after some fragmented cases, the, the parts of it that, that sort of get woven into the parts of it that, that most people think are, are largely uh, agreeable um, kind of get woven into other things. And, and then when you come back after a few decades, you're like, ah, okay, yeah, this is the That's sensible a, part like, of this. Like, right? like once the case, like once the fragmented case starts to be hardened, it's hardened, in, as you say, woven into the law, maybe is the way of saying it, like you said, people begin to appreciate that there's a utility in treating it as though it stated a rule. Right? Like it's, well, is that part yeah, of it? Like it yes, like and there are enough, we have enough flexibility way. in the way that we, um, in the way that it, I can describe an event in the past in my present. Right. There's enough flexibility in, in sort of language and storytelling capacity that, that I can take the threads from it that, I mean, this makes precedent sound not a, a determiner in a way, mm-hmm. which would make some exactly, people uncomfortable, yeah. I would imagine. But in any event, um, it, it's, um, yeah, you, you can sort of look, you can look at the threads of it that seem sensible um, today and, and make productive use of them. Mm-hmm. And if that happens enough times, um, uh, then whether or not, if you got in a time machine, you could convince someone at the time of arrow one and arrow two, you know, someday this is all going to seem much more calm. Right. Yeah. Uh, and maybe they wouldn't believe you, but, but, but okay. But in the present, it does seem more calm. This, this is Llewellyn in the Bramble Bush saying that, you know, the habit yeah. of treating yeah. the habit of precedent hardens into a norm, right? Mm. The, the should. You, you treat something as precedent enough and it becomes, well, you ought to do that. You ought yeah. to treat it. Differently. And so I wonder how much of the discussion of, is, is, is driven by, in, in your paper, Richard, is driven by the fact that we're talking about, for example, the death penalty. And we're talking about some very intense First Amendment issues. And we're talking about things where, where you know... It, That's the, why I went to liability. To the try waters to... remain royal. Right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They haven't calmed down much. On some of these issues, hmm. well, I don't. I don't think that my um, hypos depend on the the uh, royal waters. I think. I think you just said. Uh, I think. You know, I think it carries over to the liability example from before, and, and indeed any uh, any number of other examples. Um, I do think that there's a lot in your description of these arrow um, lines of jurisprudence that that's really interesting. I mean, one one way to think about it that I think is consistent with the bramble bush type of of reflection is that you're really talking about a different type of, either a different type of precedent or a, a qualitatively different way of using precedent that is distinct from what I think sometimes goes under the label modern stare decisis, where you have one authoritative ruling that's treated almost in like a quasi-legislative way. Right. Um, and I think it's that quasi-legislative aspect of modern stare decisis that makes the Marx rule, um, it, it, it creates a lot of demand for the Marx rule because it creates... A possibility that if we can only figure out what the narrowest grounds is, then we have a rule of decision. Boom. But if you look at the older cases, uh, and indeed if you look much further back in time, even before the 20th century, uh, it becomes increasingly common to, uh, or increasingly natural also, to think that it's not a matter of finding that one magic statement that we can then treat as authoritative and boom, knock it, knock out our case today. It's rather more about looking at accumulated wisdom, accumulated practices. Um, it, it, it's, not, it's not so um, uh, algorithmic. It's more about judgment. Uh, it's more of a common law type approach. And I think that I think part of what the Marx rule is both fostering and a product of 
is a, 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 tend, a, a tendency to move away from that type of reasoning toward the more stare decisis uh, way of thinking. So, so how would that affect the, let's go back to the negligence example for a second and just see, yeah. like in a world without the Marx rule. So, you know, if, if instead, you know, of the, you know, there's one group which says strict liability for manufacturers, there's another group which says only in the case of grievous immoral action. And then there's this middle group which says negligence. And even by the fact that I said middle, there's some kind of normative judgment there, but. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so don't do that, Christian. No, no, but I, I, think, it, I think it's critical. Because, so, so if we replace that middle group with not just negligent, but like, um, uh, you know, strict liability, but only for Christians, right? Then it's like, then it's obvious that there's this hidden premise right? That, that the law mm-hmm. should t- make that distinction. And in fact, the, there's total disagreement about whether, like, there's not a majority in favor of, of the law using that distinction, even though there's a law, e- even though there's a majority in favor of a particular result of a Christian who's injured getting compensation, right? And so, uh, so you, you might say, well, let's just get rid of the Marx rule. And then in the negligence case, if, there's no, if the judges know there's no Marx rule, then there would be like a, a six-judge opinion saying that at least in negligence cases, it should be compensable. And then three others would write, we would go further and say, blah, blah, blah. They would behave differently. Right. Precisely for the reason that it doesn't seem that, it doesn't seem that bad to apply the Marx rule in that case, because we just know that the, the hidden premises aren't going to change our, our, our conclusions there, right? That if, if strict liability is okay, then negligence is probably also okay. And whatever you know, that the law can take account of negligence and no one disagrees with that, right? So, um, so, so in, other, in other words, for the same reason that one suspects that, uh, or that one thinks that using the Marx rule in that case would not be problematic as a matter of fact, even if as a matter of practice, you don't want to use the Marx rule, you would expect that judges, if there were no Marx rule, to get together and write a six-person opinion and then a three-judge concurrence. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So I'm I'm a, a big into trying to uh, spec out dynamic effects uh, of these rules of precedent. In other words, once you set the rule, how will that affect future Supreme Court decision making? And obviously, there's some speculation that, but I think we can make some at least informed judgments about it. Um, I do think that the line of reasoning you just outlined suggests a kind of maybe it's a version of Marx, maybe it's a Marx alternative or alternative to Marx, which would be something like saying, well. If we today look at the opinions and we hypothesize based on what we know in our legal culture and the things that they write, that they would in fact have reached majority agreement on a second best, let's say, option, then that's when we should treat the ostensibly lesser opinion as binding. Right. So in other words, you, you, instead, of, instead of creating a situation where the justices self-sort to create a majority, which is more what the uh, absence of a Marx rule would do. You kind of run hypothetically what you think they would do, and then treat the and you know, treat the result as uh, as binding. And I, I take that your your point about getting away from the Christians non Christians example is to come up with examples where it's more intuitive to think that that kind of um, hypothetical um, compromise can be can be recognized or yeah, precisely. Per- Precisely because we all share a com, you know, like anybody you can imagine who participates with us in our interpretive culture shares a common model of law that says that negligence can be a salient discriminator, right? Right. So I think it's I think this is a, a great line of of thinking. I think it's it's worth noting that it's very unusual uh, to see people defending Marx as a product of this kind of um, as best use the word speculation. Maybe that's too charged. But this kind of hypothetical uh, negotiation. Rather, the, the, the 
the dominant trend, I would say, is to try to look for these so-called logically compelled inferences precisely because, well, I think there are two reasons. One is it's just uncomfortable for judges to, to hypothesize about what other judges would do in a counterfactual sense. It just seems speculative and, and not, uh, not very reliable. But the other reason is that once you, I think, is once you start going down that path, it really does put pressure on the question of, well, why are we delegating this counterfactual activity to later judges when the, the jurists who are making the decision in the first instance are in such a better position to actually conduct that negotiation for themselves? It seems so much more efficient to create a rule that would actually put that responsibility on the more efficient actors, namely yeah. the, the, yeah. Yeah, that, would, that was essentially my argument, right? That, that if yeah. the Marx rule is justified, it's probably going to be in situations where we just don't really have any doubt that the models would sync up in a particular way, right? That they would take account <laughs> of all these premises. But if that's true, it, but, but then the argument is, it's exactly when that happens that the judges could be counted on in the absence of a Marx rule to exactly. form a majority. That's, that's and a so if that's the case, then, then yeah. like, why ever have a Marx rule at all? Because the only times that it would be needed and justified are cases in which you would expect the judges to line up and, 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 and basically select a precedent of their own volition. What's odd, yeah, I think what, that's a great way. Of, yeah. What's odd to me, Christian, about the way you set that up is that, and maybe this is what you were saying, and I'm just having difficulty um, parsing it. The, the single biggest problematic piece of evidence we have about your story is the fact that they didn't produce a majority opinion, right? right? right. Surely it would occur to them just as easily as it does to you that one of the ways the three who believe in strict liability could have, could have voted is let, let's let one of the negligence people write it. And if we want to concur and say, you know, hey, uh, for the purpose of having a majority, we're certainly happy to accept the negligence rule. By the way, I individually, alternatively, would have been perfectly happy also to hold liability because I think strict liability is a great idea, right? They could have done that and they didn't, right? right? And it's the very fact that they didn't that puts us in a position of having to try to figure out what to do right. the next time around. But, so but they, you're, you're saying, oh, I would predict they would sync up, but they could have and didn't. But, but, they, but they didn't in a world that has the Marx rule. And which is why the argument... Well, so, it does now, right, after 1977. Right. But well, so what were people doing before then? I mean, you can sort of historicize this, I suppose, in one respect. Well, but, they, they weren't citing Marx, but they were doing a similar thing, right? I mean, they, they, were, they were still extracting a rule by putting people together. I think I picked up some of that in your, in your paper, Richard. But, but also, Richard's paper refers to the cheapest cost avoider approach, and we can kind of back up from that and think about what underlies it. And that's like, we should put liability on the person in the best position to balance costs and benefits so that if we kind of internalize a liability on them, they will make the best cost benefit analysis. Like that's what underlies the cheapest cost avoider. And so, you know, in this case, it's like, who's in the best position to know the costs and benefits of forming a binding precedent that may be imperfect, right? It's the judges who are in a position to, to do that, right? right? I mean, it's it, rather than people down the line trying to decide what people should have done many years ago, right? And, and so I, I take that as, as, as Richard's point, right? That if without the Marx rule, you kind of internalize that kind of cost on, um, uh, on the judges who will then maybe decide to form majorities when they wouldn't otherwise have done so. And they'll be in the best position to know whether they want to do that or if they anticipate like next year, another case will come up. We'd rather leave it fractured this year. Next year, we'll take another case and maybe we'll see if we can get somewhere. Like, you know what I mean? You're looking at me quizzically. I do. I'm, I'm I, not, do. I know I'm not talking great I'm today. I'm trying to sort out the... It's, it's a one I'm talking th bad today because I have <laughs> not had enough coffee. One thing that's fascinating about the project is that it is, it is hard to know, um, as, and, and like you, Christian, I found Richard's argument very compelling and finished the paper and thought to myself, yeah, this Marx thing is a turkey. Let's get rid of this, <laughs> right? 
Um, but but then I keep wondering, okay, but in in a in a world where the Marx rule exists, is it really true that we can do without the Marx rule? Put differently, if it whoa, didn't exist, whoa. wouldn't we have to invent it? Like there's something Wait, that's ab- not putting it differently. That's a different statement, I think. <laughs> that's something. There's, <laughs> there's something about the fr- fragmented judicial decision making at a Supreme Court level that um, that calls for in in these multi round experiences calls for some way to manage. Yeah, the 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 reckoning with the past. But I like I like Richard's reference earlier to to statutes, right, in legislatures, because to the extent that we see decisions and precedential decisions, it's kind of like statutes, but they're more complicated because they're right. reasoned decisions, right? But they still like, you know, whenever talking, it's, it's, it immediately, immediately made me think of like the law of stare decisis as, as another form of interpretation. You know, I know we've talked about this before, but like there's statutory interpretation. There's also interpretation of prior decisions, but they, we don't think of them in the same way. Like there's not there's not like a there's not that language of like originalism of of interpreting prior precedents and everything. But anyway, so what makes a precedent? So it, are we looking for that moment when the judges decide yes, we want to pass a statute here? We want and, and we have decided <laughs> to do that by talking in the language of majoritarianism. Yeah. So how do you think about precedent formation at that at that basic level, Richard? What is it? Well, I think for the purposes of this project, I'm assuming modern stare decisis with its quasi-legislative aspect, just because I think that's the practice that we have in our legal system right now. Uh, so I don't try to defend the, the current picture of precedent. Certainly there are kind of rival pictures of precedent that I think your arrow discussion indicated before. Um, and I think there's a, a strong case to be made that maybe maybe modern stare decisis is a little bit too much like a um, declaratory or quasi-legislative Operation. On the other hand, you can certainly see the the benefits of having the situation we have now. We have this great institution for creating uniformity and, and settlement. And maybe maybe we on net be worse off if we didn't have that institution. Certainly, I think during the uh, civil rights period, the court's ability to speak authoritatively was kind of sub- substantially built and substantially uh, uh, sold, I guess, to the legal community as a desirable thing to deal with uh, some pretty serious problems. But I, I don't think any of that was foreordained, and, and certainly the legal system in earlier points in time in this very country didn't really exhibit that kind of um, that kind of quality. Could Congress pass your uh, recommendation as a statute? So this is a, I'm so glad you asked about something like this. This is something I've been I've been pondering lately. It really goes to the nature of the Marx rule, as uh, I think Christian says, says sorry decisis as a rule of interpretation. I think that's exactly a, a, a wonderful way to frame this kind of stuff. My uh, intuition is that a legislative intervention here would be very problematic because it would be um, a big intrusion on the internal operations of the court. It would be a little bit like Congress trying to set um, a voting rule, just just a straight up voting rule in the first instance. But the fact that I have that intuition doesn't mean that it's uh, it's obviously wrong. I think uh, to to have Congress do this. I think a related hypo that I think is is in the margins now of the of my draft has to do with whether the court as an institution could promulgate a rule rather than through a presidential decision like Marx could promulgate a rule, uh, mm. you know, Supreme Court Rule X that just says, by the way, when we communicate our views of precedent, this is the rule we're going to use. It's either Marx or not Marx. And would that be, would that supplant Marx, which was issued in an Article Three case and controversy? Would it bind all the ju- justices, even some justices who might not want to communicate their views through Marx? Um, I think those kinds of questions put pressure on 
on what what this kind of meta principle yeah. uh, of precedent really is. There's also this this question of what obligates lower court judges. Before you, because uh, I want to, so there's a statute that says that uh, if the court is equally divided, uh, that counts as an affirmance. That's actually in the U.S. Code, isn't it? Isn't I there, believe so, yeah. So, so is that statute unconstitutional? You know, that's interesting. Um, I'd have to think about that. Because that's that seems very close to dealing with the with a not if not the problem of Marx, then a then something that's within a stone's throw. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely in a way it's in a way it's more intrusive than Marx because it establishes so what what are the other what are the other attractive options for a court in that situation? You could dismiss rather than affirm. Uh, I think that's 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 maybe the most attractive alternative. If the court were of a mind to dismiss rather than a, than affirm, you know, it's interesting because I, I guess that exposes kind of the, the counter to the intuition I was expressing before, which is that as as long as you don't have something that will create too many deliberative inefficiencies, these could just be rules of the road that the justices then can reasonably negotiate around they could work around so, it yeah because because as i understand that statute it doesn't create precedent it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't instruct lower courts on what to do in new cases well and it doesn't instruct the supreme court what to do either well, right so well, they don't they, it doesn't tell them what to make of that affirmance right so so if the supreme court is in divided, a subsequent case well, right or even in that case so if the supreme court is divided <laughs> four to four right so there's a statute which says that counts as an affirmance but the supreme court can always write into that opinion here's what we think should happen below and in that case, they're unified around that, right? I, I, in other words, does this, could the statute, like even logically, take away the Supreme Court's power of disposition? I, I don't see how it could do that. Well, I, I, yeah, I think that would be the more aggressive version. In other words, what if the, what if the Congress set a, a non-majority voting rule for judgments in, in regular cases? That, was, that would seem like the very intrusive version. And I guess what what the uh, equal divided affirmance rule does is it's much it's much more narrow, but it's still consequential. It's establishing that there is a you know an affirmance is a is a, is a consequential judgment, and it's a it's a very minimally consequential judgment. It's not like a reversal, for example. Uh, it's not changing the, the status quo ante, but it is doing something. Yeah, but I, I guess what I guess what I was saying though is like you know so suppose that one member is 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 uh, recused and you have a four four divide on the court about right. like a, a a ninth circuit judgment or something like that, right? So right, you know the mandate's going to return with it with uh, an affirmance on equally divided grounds. There'll be no, but this, neither the statute nor Supreme Court practice imply that any lower courts other than those in the ninth circuit should be bound. Um, by the Ninth Circuit's decision or anything that Supreme Court wrote. But if the Supreme Court wants something else to happen, even though they can't agree, like, you know, they're, they're divided 4-4, four, four, they could be, there could be six to two on what should happen, on, on, uh, on how, you know, to the, to the degree to which they wanted to say, well, we, you know, we, we can't agree on whether the decision was right, but we want to interrupt the status quo in a certain way. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think it would be, it, it's interesting to think about what, and, and there was a, before Justice Gorsuch was, uh, took his seat, right, there was a stretch of time where the court was just 4-4 uh, in a number of cases definitionally. Right. And it would be interesting to, to think how the legal world would react to <laughs> a, a, a decision that said, um, you know, the judgment below is affirmed by an equally divided court, and then there's an opinion concurring in the affirmance, which is signed by eight justices that says a bunch of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. I think people would look at that thing and go, I don't understand what ju- is what's happening here. Right. <laughs> Maybe you're Be- right. I, because, I, I, because if they there. agree, if they agree enough to say eight, Oh, a bunch of stuff, why do, why can't they agree on the disposition of this case? 
Like it's too bizarre. Um, and and I I derailed us because I was asking about whether Congress could uh, embody uh, Richard's proposal in a statute. So um, because that's it, I I find that interesting. Um, in part, I was trying to get at that just specifically, but but also a, a, a broader question: Is this a rule of procedure? Right. Exactly. Which is which your proposal about could the court issue this by rule? Right. Um, so this is, so this is an eerie question I had while I was oh reading your paper, yeah, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. that, 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 um, because you point out that there are state courts that are now using marks as a pattern. Uh, yep. and I wonder w- would a federal circuit court of appeals that's hearing a diversity case, uh, in, in the state Supreme court decision, uh, that seems most relevant is, is fragmented. Uh-huh. So you have to figure out what to do with it. Um, and, and in that state, um, they, uh, one thing that state Supreme Court had said earlier was, you know, we think Marx is nuts. Um, it has no application to what we do here in the state of X. Um, so you better not use it uh, in the state of X. And they don't, right, uh, in their state courts. What, what, should federal, what should the Federal Court of Appeals do in a diversity case? They have to make a prediction under Erie. The case is fragmented. It's like a federal re- court's exam problem. <laughs> Good thing I don't teach that uh, course. Um, but what should they do? What should the federal court of appeals do? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. I think that uh, rather than the eerie frame that you established there, another way to think about it is in terms of what is being communicated, which I think is, is a, a more uh, stare decisis frame for this. So if, if I understand what you're saying, the state court ruling is the object of interpretation. We have to make an eerie guess. Correct. And, and the state court has told us in its prior rulings, uh, or maybe, you know, from maybe because of the state legislature, to riff your example, or maybe through a state <laughs> uh, court rule, to use my example, right. has told us in some authoritative way that the means of our communication is as follows. And one of the, one of the things that follows is when we have a fragmented decision, we mean we're communicating that, you know, why is the binding precedent? Um, I think that uh, my strong intuition is, is that the right thing to do there is to is for the federal court to absorb the state rule. And it would be very peculiar, I think, if a if a federal rule decision that was really designed for a different institution. I mean, Marx's Marx, you know, at its conception was about the Supreme Court. And it might it might be that Marx, you know, lower federal courts use Marx on their own decision sometimes, but that's not a self evident extension of the Marx rule right there, even within the federal system. But the idea of imposing the rule on a state court decision maker that has self-consciously uh, revealed that it means to communicate a different message. Right. It does not like the way Marx operates on its own body of decisional exactly. law, yeah. which is interesting because, of course, the eerie intuition, the traditional sense of eerie, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, is that it does not apply to rules of procedure. It applies only to substantive law. So if Marx is procedural, a federal circuit court really should apply it. Shouldn't it? Well, but I, I'm not. I'm not. Sh- I, so uh, there is obviously the substance procedure distinction, but I think arguably what's going on here is it, it, it's it's not as though the federal court is absorbing the state procedural role, and the federal court engages its processes to make decisions. Rather, we're trying to find out the content of a substantive right. state state ruling. Yeah, it's a very different way of thinking about of, it. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It's a product of state processes. I love the. Uh, the, the frame that you put it in, but I think that the it's not a, it's not a matter of the federal court itself absorbing a state rule of procedure, which I think is the normal uh, eerie 
question. Rather, it's about understanding a state substantive rule in light of its state procedures. Yeah, sort of what is the nature of an eerie guess? And in, the, yeah. in, in my hypo, the eerie guess is a substantive question. So you have to look at the way yeah. that state Supreme Court is going to make sense out of its own existing decisional law, including fragmented exactly. decisions. Yeah. Can I leave Erie yeah. behind? Um, if, you mu- if, you, <laughs> if you feel that you must, uh, I know it's very sad. I, I, so yes. here, here's what, so I, I, if we are in this post-Marx world where judges understand that they need to form coalitions, you address a little bit of, the, of this in the paper on a couple occasions where judges joined, uh, justices joined opinions Expressing reservations. You say but, post-Marx, you mean Marx has been overruled yeah, yeah, and yeah, let yeah. go. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not just merely mm. that it is after Marx, because we're already oh. in a post-Marx oh, world. Oh, I get what you mean. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, the, the, the post-Marx regime. Okay. Right? Uh, yeah. Well, the post-Marx regime world. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. Marx, uh, Marx has been overruled. Uh, yes. So in this, so we kind of imagine, you know, judges and justices uh, um, uh, forming majorities specifically to you know, making like deliberate decisions whether to form precedent in situations where their reasons might be somewhat fractured. And I'm wondering, right. um, uh, at the level of the Supreme Court in particular, what gives them that power? Why should they have the power to decide um, whether something is precedential? I, I know there was like a lot of debate years ago about like summary orders in the lower courts. I'm not really talking about that. The Anastasoft yeah, debate. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I'm kind of more interested in whether they're an important constraint on judicial power and agenda setting in a world where they already have cert to shape their agenda is that they are constrained by expressing kind of reasons, right? And lower courts are bound by those reasons um, and by the applications of those yep. reasons. And so, so why should they have the power essentially yep. to legislate, even if their agenda to legislate is constrained by cases and controversies? Like why should they have the yep. power to turn that on and off? And is there a, a concern about treating like cases alike or some kind of fundamental judicial exactly. principle that is going to be at stake if we if we just acknowledge they have that power. Yeah, I think this is great. This relates to your, I think you made some comments uh, earlier, Christian, about um, about looking at from the perspective of the lower federal court. Yeah. Uh, you, you might think that if this, you know, in, if the Supreme Court just starts saying that certain things that it does are precedential in a certain way, why should anyone listen to those statements? Right. And I think that, it, I think, um, in fact, or descriptively, part of the answer has to do with that history that we alluded to before when the Supreme Court started flexing its presidential muscle and saying things about its authority and the kind of legal community kind of got on board with that, uh, especially in the mid-20th century. Um, but you might, you might think of it somewhat differently. I think you were, you were just suggesting maybe a lower federal court is not automatically bound by these perhaps uh, self-glorifying uh, statements about when the Supreme Court says we establish the law and so forth, maybe those aren't automatically binding by operation of the meaning of Article 3 or the judicial power or inferior courts clause or anything like that. Maybe the reason the lower federal court cares about them is because if the lower federal court looks out at the world and thinks about the consequences of not following the one Supreme Court designated by Article 3, then the result will be a lot of disuniformity and um, discord that will ultimately redound to everyone's disadvantage, will undermine the rule of law, will be inequitable, and so forth. And so it's that kind of individual perspective of lower court judge thinking about the moral consequences of their behavior that gives them a reason to kind of opt into a situation or a system where the Supreme Court has substantial precedential authority. Now, I I should say that in another, this is another hobby horse of mine, 
I think that very often the lower federal courts view the value of following Supreme Court precedent not as a rigid thing that they must do, but rather as a point in favor <laughs> of a certain type of ruling, and that they can then balance their fidelity to the Supreme Court precedent against other important rule of law values. And that sometimes causes them, in my view, to narrow the Supreme Court precedent or read it more narrowly than, than perhaps it's best read. If I was right to read your earlier comments as adopting this kind of perspective of the uh, inferior court, unfortunately, the Constitution calls them inferior courts, um, then that, that might suggest a reason to, for the inferior courts to obey their superiors, so to speak, but also a reason sometimes to not obey their superiors too automatically. Yeah, I, I'm certainly attracted to that kind of consequentialist reasoning and kind of web of incentives that a lower court judges in, which is kind of why I raise it. But I, but I also want, you know, I'm also attracted to kind of, at least when it comes to role-based performance, there's, a, you know, I am attracted to a certain kind of deontology, right? So there's a certain kind of role-based deontology that says the obligation of the lower court judge is just to make a, um, a kind of a good faith interpretation of the existing set of legal materials. And yeah, maybe in a Dworkin type way, right? That that's, mm-hmm. and the reason that we insist on that kind of role-based deontology, I think is consequential, right? So like I'm ultimately a consequentialist, but I, but I think that you, you need not look at just the set of incentives on the, and so when a lower court judge does that and says, my obligation here is not to make predictions about how the Supreme Court will come out in a case that it hasn't right. decided. It's not to give effect to their own conceptions of what is statute-like that they've done. Instead, it is to make an interpretation of kind of the acknowledging that the majority-based reasoning of the Supreme Court is authoritative as against a contradictory such reasoning by lower courts. If I give effect to all of these legal materials and the case in front of me may restrict my attention to a certain set of those legal materials, here is my best answer. Right. Having made an interpretation of those things. That's it's, I think that's a very different perspective. And it's one which suggests that if courts are if lower courts are free to do that, then there is something illegitimate about the Supreme Court insisting that they do otherwise. Well, I, if I if I, I think I'm also attracted to what you call role based deontology, I think that's a that's a great frame uh, as well. I, I think the, the question that raises for me is when the if I understood what you just said, when the lower court is looking at the materials in this Torkinian way, trying to engage in a Herculean endeavor yeah, to right. come up with the best story. But but there has to be some, at some point in that process, the material's relative value or weight or aesthetic appeal or whatever has to be designated. Yeah. And in our system right now, a lot of that, uh, enormous amount of that has to do with which authority created the material. Christian, are you saying that Marx, that Marx is telling lower court judges to do something that is contrary to the the no. better way to think about what their job is? No, no. I, 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 in fact, it may, maybe the opposite. I mean, this may be one virtue of Marx is that it encourages this kind of like thinking about how reasons line up. But like in, in, the, in the world where we've jettisoned Marx uh-huh. and the Supreme Court behaves in the way that we think that they might behave, which is to form coalitions around outcomes and reasons, even though people have reservations. And so they're engaging in a process of like, legislating, like by deciding, you know, we want to create an authority here. And to do that, we're going to form this coalition. Like we may decide, decide from a systems, a system wide perspective that given that we prefer lower court judges to operate in this kind of role-based deontology system, right? That that habit on the part of the Supreme court disrupts that the functioning of the system in that way. In other words, 
like if the Supreme Court oh, is I constantly see. creating authorities by acting in this legislative mode, yeah. it doesn't allow the lower court judge to kind of put things together to tell the best story. And maybe it, it, it's, in see. other words, gathering too much authority to the Supreme Court. Maybe what we want them to do is when they actually have a conviction, we want them to act on it. When they don't have right. a conviction, we want them to kind of yes. put some reasons out there and then have those reasons followed up by lower courts and the story is gradually filled out. And so I wonder if by jettisoning the Mark rule, kind of yes. like counterintuitively, we're it, like disrupting that process. It sounds like different. It sounds to me like it's not about jettisoning it or not jettisoning it. It's about figuring out how to describe what an individual justice should do. And, and when you're characterizing what an individual justice should do, um, the degree to which you think their goals should take into account the fact that they're a member of a group or not. Mm -hmm. A group that acts largely by having five people decide something, right? Um, because you could describe what they're supposed to do, what the individual justices are supposed to do, without much reference to the fact that there are other members of the court, right? You should just get the materials, decide what you think the right thing to do is, and then say that. And if there are four other people who agree with you, so be it. If there aren't, so be that. Um, or, right. or if you describe it a different way, Hey, you know, one of the things you do is you not only in decide individual cases, right. you decide cases that you decided to decide for the purpose of guiding other actors. Right. And in guiding other actors, it's going to matter th that there be something to guide them. Yep. Uh, and, 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 and you're going to have to figure out how to articulate that. And one way to do it would be to say, when five of us speak with one voice, that voice is a guiding voice. But that's and not what I'm otherwise. saying. Like, is giving them that power wise? That's really the question, right? So, and, and, and we think that if we get rid of, like, one, one argument is if you get rid of the Marx rule, they will claim that power more than they have now, right? Mm. Um, so, so, I, I'm, so there's a lot, a lot of great stuff there. I'm skeptical of that, that last claim, Christian. I think actually the one problem with the Marx rule that would be remedied if in the post Marx world regime, whatever you said, is that, um, <laughs> The justices would have an, a in, a more uh, accessible means of exhibiting modesty because it would be more uh, available to them to just lay out their perhaps siloed, go to Joe's point, it could be just their individual views of the law without considering the votes of other members or, or considering all other members' views and deciding, you know what, we're just going to lay some stuff out here, we're going to decide this case, and we're not going to create a quasi-legislative stare decisis rule for all time. Part of the issue with Marx, I think, is it creates that legislative pressure yeah. in a way that is not unavoidable because every version of Marx has at least some possible way if they work hard enough to not create a precedent. But it, it makes it hard to not create a precedent when you have Marx. That's why I think I agree with your overall approach. Right? Yeah. You know, but, yeah. but then the question moves to some of the stuff you addressed at the end of the paper. When someone, I think it was O'Connor in one opinion and another in another opinion, says, you know, yeah. I really Thomas, think this, but yeah. I'm going to join this opinion to give guidance. The screws rule. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The screws rule. Uh, uh, do, um, uh, do we think, A, that's wise, and B, like as a more formal matter, should the Supreme Court have that power? Like, it does, is, is, is a lower court judge bound to treat as authoritative? a five-judge majority where one of those judges says, these aren't actually my reasons. Right, right. So I, I think that there's, so I'll take the last part first, and this goes back to the, I guess you were calling it a consequentialist uh, frame before. But I, I think that because the justices are at this apex position where they, they have a lot of information, both on the merits and in terms of what's happening in the country in general, and they have a unique type of authority by virtue of the way that they're selected and observed by the country, I think it, it makes a considerable amount of sense 
to honor their compromises, which, which by the way, are just mm. pervasive. I mean, there's right. no account, I think, of the Supreme Court that would deny that they're not actually making, <laughs> however much we may, we may want to talk about the appeal of this option, but in fact, they're not making siloed individualistic decisions on the merits. They're all considering you know, their, how, their, how their vote will affect future cases. Absolutely, uh, yeah, And yeah. adjusting, absolutely right. So, um, so I, I think there's, it makes a lot of sense for the legal system as a, as a whole, in general, to allow the justices to make those kinds of compromises when they feel that doing so is appropriate. And by the way, if we had a different rule and the lower court judges, uh, maybe they generate it themselves, they generate a practice of disregarding uh, votes where a justice expresses, you know, their disagreement with the rule they're adopting. I think that would have bad effects on the transparency of the court mm-hmm. because it would discourage them from being candid about the fact that this is something that a practice they're engaged in. Uh, it would encourage them just not to not to explain that they're engaging in what I call the screws rule, which is to, as you, as you guys said, to vote for a position that's not their first best in light of all the, all relevant considerations. Yeah, so that's it's a, it would be um it would have an information depriving effect. Yeah. In the same Ultimately, yeah, yeah, on that side and on the other side um by like agreeing to an authoritative precedent that doesn't take a, that, that doesn't include within it all the reasons of its of its uh, uh, uh of the members that compose that majority. You know, by declaring an authoritative rule, you're kind of depriving in the, on the lower court side the creation of lots of other kinds of information because people are just going to follow the rule. Whereas if the rule were unsettled, like yeah. You know, in, in a world where the Supreme Court could just declare, like they, you know, at the front of every opinion is a code, right? Like, you know, um, you know, strong precedent, unsettled, <laughs> yes. uh, weak precedent, something, you That's know, something like that, yeah. right? And then, the, in the case of an unsettled case, there's going to be lots of room for creative application by lower court judges. And you know, in other words, the Supreme Court is really yeah. saying, "Here's our first shot at it. You guys go yeah. away and 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 talk about this for a while, and then we'll come back in round two. It's definitely a trade-off because you right. you know you're you're making me right. wistful, Christian, for a world, an alternate universe where the Supreme Court decides by with seriatim opinions, right? And like the old English cases, right? And right? no yeah. single case is viewed as a strong precedent for anything. That what you look for right. is an overall fabric of lots of decisions, right? Um, as evidence of a principle that eventually becomes sort of solid enough for everyone to think is a good idea to explain a, a current application, right? There's, that's got a lot of, you've got a lot of bottom up wisdom and information yep. getting generated there, right? right? But you're paying a huge price, I think, in predictability and planning if for things that you want crisper answers to. Well, And, yeah. and yes. so in a world where a ho- there's, we're just a much more business driven world than that more maybe agrarian world, frankly, of the 1700s, uh, um, that, that this, uh, so we need the settling function. The settling a, function a of the Supreme there. Court is, is important. It, I mean, right. The, right uh, I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty good argument to be made for it. I mean, that, of course that is how things turned out. John Marshall did sort yeah. of bend yep. the court into a different institution. But if you didn't, if, if the Supreme Court didn't play the settling function, right, it just tended to move things towards settlement, but it, it wasn't able to decide to act definitively, like, because it did the seriatim thing and there was always room to do, like, in that world, wouldn't might you think Congress would take up that role? The Supreme Court nudges, and then Congress acts definitively. Now, this wouldn't obviously be true with respect to constitutional interpretation, I guess. But I'm just thinking out loud. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I actually. So I think it's interesting that that, that distinction you just drew there. The seriatim thing was thought to be not just in the United States. It, it, key points in in the UK too. It was thought to be highly inefficient and confusing, largely for business, as I think Joe was suggesting. But I think the other half of the equation, the move to single decision bindingness 
in the U.S. Supreme Court became really evident later when the not when the business stuff, I think it's my impression, became uh, of top importance when the con law cases became of top importance. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wonder if there is a kind of mutually supportive historical story there where both ingredients kind of uh, nudged us into this current regime. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Constitutional review is really binary, isn't it? I mean, it's like, you know, either all lower courts should treat this statute as operational or all lower courts should treat it as not operational. Like there's not really well, a middle ground. I don't, is that different than other legal rulings? I don't know. Yeah. yeah so I, I don't think I would agree with that. Actually. I think the current system is not, pu- despite my emphasizing this over and over again, it's not purely characterized by this modern side decisive top down. We do have all this percolation. The justices themselves talk about percolation all the time. They allow yeah. lots of circuit splits to linger, including on con law questions for quite a while until they have just the right case or they're ready to, or they're ready to, to opine. They feel like this is a time when the, the value of settlement, given our confidence as a court, is high enough. We need to intervene here. So, so the current situation, it kind of has a bottom-up element, too, especially when the court issues a, a ruling. You know, I really like, Christian, your point about if they set a code, you know, how unsettled is yeah, this? Right. Well, you know, without, without using that, that algorithmic uh, code-type thing, in fact, I think it's fairly clear that sometimes you get a Supreme Court decision with or without a majority opinion, and you just read it and you know this is wishy-washy. They're, they're not even committed to this. And sometimes it's not clear exactly what they're saying, and that is kind of a way for them to achieve a little settlement, maybe kind of rustle things up in the lower courts, give them something new to think about, and then the lower courts will percolate and create a, a bottom-up movement again. Indeed, Hughes, this Marx Hill case, I think, is an example of that. The justices have been, by and large, leaving Marx uh, to the lower courts, yeah. and the lower courts, in my view, have been percolating up. You know, we need to change course on this. It's interesting. If we could write a paper like which which talks about like the value of percolation and information in Supreme Court decision making, and that they're really like it, at least two options. One is like ex ante um, information generation, which is basically cert. Right, cert plays the role. Cert is the is the tool the Supreme Court has to manage the amount of information that it takes on before it actually decides a case. But a, a rule where the Supreme Court doesn't have um, complete authority, or at least doesn't commonly exercise complete settlement of questions, is one where it gives up yeah. a little bit of the ex post information control, right? And and, and I just wonder, um, it, it's interesting, right? Because ex ante mm. control of percolation is the one which retains the most power in the Supreme Court. And that's what we have, right? I mean, they because they, they, definitive settlement after they take a case is a way of kind of ending the debate, right? And, if, and, and the other alternative we're talking about would, would, uh, would kind of keep the debate going. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and this, so I guess two quick comments on that, uh, as well. So one is that even when they have settlement, I think that does mostly close the door. I think you're right. But even then you get these opinions sometimes where judges will say we're bound by X, but we really don't like this rule. And we urge the Supreme court to overrule oppressor. And so that, that kind of some bottom percolation can still happen and actually be quite consequential through those kind of uh, reluctant decisions to follow. Which is, which is Marx. I mean, like, like, you know, a little bit of inception here and a little bit of inception that like you're, you're challenging Marx and you, and it's, per, you know, there was a decision, there was some post decision percolation now, right? Yeah. And now you're challenging Marx. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's certainly how I hope uh, this, this direction is going. And it reminds me of another interesting point you made earlier, which is that some people, some people think that, um, Marx is good because it encourages the lower court judges to think about how the opinions line up, I think is maybe how you put it. Yeah. And I think, I think that that is, that is, uh, a, a, an interesting way to view the effects of the Marx rule, but I think it's not 
actually how it works out. I'm a, in my view, what actually happens when courts try to do marks is not that they spend time engaged in interesting reflection that is profitable for figuring out the merits of any question in a better way. Rather, what they often end up doing is work that's really kind of um, perpendicular to the merits of any any first order question. It's kind of like reading tea leaves. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and so I think it's it becomes a kind of um, it's very intellectual. It's almost like a like a crossword puzzle or something. It's like, it's like using your your judicial intellect, but in a way that's not going to help decide actual cases better in the future. Didn't you have a California Supreme Court decision in like one of your footnotes where one of the judges said that, but they, 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 you would engage yeah, in like head counting? Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So it, I'm wondering if you think there's a tension between um, Marx as it currently exists and the court's practice uh, when it comes to overruling its own prior decisions. It, it, it quite explicitly, and I think any number of times uh, has said to lower courts, look, uh, when we're ready to overrule one of our prior decisions, we'll let you know. Like that's our exactly. job. That's absolutely not your job. Uh, and in in a way, do, do you think Marx is in tension with that? It strikes me as being very quite well, radically you, in tension with what do, it. Actually. What do you mean? How, like I, I'm not getting it. What the tension yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Be, because the the um, the way the court handles overruling its precedents is it says to lower courts, it's our role, not your role to understand when precedent exists or not. And Marx does the opposite. Mm. It says, we're all kind of a mess. We're a big hot mess over here. So why don't you guys go figure out whether or not there's a precedent and what it means? Um, and here's a rule of thumb you can use to do that when, we're, when we can't get our own act together and just say it our damn selves, right? By giving you a 5X oh, decision, yeah. right? So it's a very odd, to me, it's kind of one is flipped on its head of the other. Where and, I see it is the, is the uh, Supreme Court with 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 retaining the sole power to overrule its cases, although, you know, lower court judges should more often concur and say, but, you know, the Supreme Court, you ought to think but, about but, this. But, but one, and one of the main reasons they're willing to overrule a case is it becomes so undermined by other decisions. So you could put together a set of materials, a set of legal materials that would say, you know, that's not really the rule anymore, right? And in that sense, it's like a fragmented opinion. Yeah, it's only like, a fragmented right. group of opinions. But this is also like, you know, this is like, what is law? So it's like, are, are they making an inference about, about what the Supreme Court will do in the future, which the Supreme Court obviously can do because it's doing the thing? Or are they making an inference about the state of the law? law. Like, so if, if you think that overruling right. is an inference about what the, the state of the law as it is now, there's no reason to think a lower court can't do that as well as the Supreme Court, right? I mean, because if overruling is a consequence of the current precedent and you're bound by the current precedent, then, you know, a lower court should do that. But if you think it's an inference about, you know, what the, um, about whether this particular group of people on the Supreme Court wants to do with that precedent, then obviously the lower courts are, are not in a position to do that. Does that make sense? I, you, you're, yeah, go ahead. It, it, I think it goes back to your, some of your opening observations about what you think these judgments are, are about, about fundamentally. About, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and um, so I teach antitrust. And so uh, the, the vertical restraint jurisprudence, which involves a series of overrulings, <laughs> the last of which was this case called Legion against creative leather products, I think, or Legion creative leather products against someone else. You know, it's a 5-4 decision, and it's in the same term as some abortion cases, in the same term as, I mm -hmm. think, um, peop, uh, parents involved, right? And so mm -hmm. it's a term where the court was going at itself, hammer and tong, 5-4, over and over again. And, and I think a lot of people predicted in this antitrust case, Legion, uh, overruling um, 
the per se rule for vertical uh, uh, price maintenance uh, restraints. Um, I think a lot of people predicted, oh gosh, that's going to be a 9-0, right? I mean, they've, they, they've shifted to the rule of mm. reason in all these other vertical restraint cases. This is, the last, this is the last pin to drop from the box. And of course, they're going to do this, right? But it turns out to be 5-4 again, because the rest of what they're doing that term is shouting at each other about how they shouldn't overrule prior cases. What, what about so, this? So the, yeah. so the Legion decision becomes wrapped up in the greater set of consequences mm. about overruling as an activity. But what, right? what about this? And I don't know if people have written on this or not, but, but what if there are kind of two ways that things are overruled? Like one of them is like, you know, Lawrence overrules Bowers and says Bowers is wrong from the day it was decided. Yeah. In other words, it's made a conclusion about its wrongness based on, its, on, on the Supreme Court's own current interpretation of the Constitution, right? Not about like the precedent is unworkable. Where another kind of overruling is like, okay, we've got this, uh, this ruling before, and maybe some other rulings, and the consequences of all of these things are that like the precedent is pointing in different directions and something has to give, right? This is like the puzzle that just won't go together. So there's no choice but to rip up one of the puzzle pieces and start mm -hmm. over again, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, so you might say, in that situation, maybe lower courts should be able to suggest that a prior Supreme Court decision is invalid because it simply won't work. Whereas, yeah. a, whereas a lower court would not, I think, be able to say that that uh, Bowers was wrong the day it was decided, right? Because that that is that a distinction that works? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm interested to hear what Richard has to say, but uh, but I think those two could be very hard to tell uh, from one another in in a case where any time has gone by. Because when you get well, to I'm Lawrence, of a realist when, doubt. Yeah, go when ahead. you get yeah, to Lawrence, yeah. you could point to, hey, there's been Romer against Evans. Yeah, there's yeah. Been, so there, there will be other cases you could point to that you could say Bowers is sort of the thing that doesn't fit anymore. Well, that's if you're a realist about it, like you, you think that if you look at enough cases, like all the reasons are out there somewhere, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I didn't yeah, so go I, that far. But, I, so so not, Richard, I, what I, do I you think of a formal distinction, but I don't necessarily believe in it. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that I, I agree with Joe, I guess, that the distinction can often uh, tend to collapse. I think a lot of what you guys have been talking about in the last couple of exchanges orbits this prediction model of precedent and whether it has appeal. Um, you know, I think a Christian or someone said, we think about the lower courts drawing inferences about the state of the law as opposed to inferences about how justices might decide cases. I think that there's a very powerful draw in a lot of these areas with overruling in general, where it's, it's a little bit like the eerie guess. You make someone's making a guess about how some how some decision maker would have or could have acted uh, at a particular time. So it's it's almost like in, in Lawrence, you say, well, in our in our prior rulings on due process rights, how, you know, knowing what we know now, how would they have come out then? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it it almost creates a way to elide the fact that. Uh, well, actually, there may have been a lot of deep, uh, uh, deeply held views in the prior decision uh, by the justices in the prior decision that actually would be uh, potentially insensitive to some of the changes that have happened uh, to bring us to where we are now. So, anyway, I, I think that I think in general, uh, this idea about about who's predicting why, when do we care about prediction, really just this runs through all of these discussions about overruling and, and also about the Marx rule. And do you think there's a tension between Marx and the court's um, very jealous guarding of its of its ability to be the one that says something's overruled? So I, I, I do, but I think I do in a way that is sensitive to Christian's pushback on, on your expression at that point. <laughs> I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think that... Um, you realize you just applied the, the, the Marx rule there. You're trying to figure <laughs> out. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm not above performative contradiction. <laughs> my, own, my own work, um, but I I think that the 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 
the reason is not simply that it's about the Supreme Court hoarding decision-making authority or not, because I think the Marx rule could itself, I think consistent with what Christian was suggesting, be viewed as just another kind of odd means of, of uh, hoarding decision-making authority if, if, one, if one wanted to view it that way. Um, this is making authority about the meta rule and then about how the court expresses its views. Mm-hmm. I think I think the the sharper tension for me is that so much of the logic behind uh, Marx's defenders, including now the the U.S. Solicitor General uh, in their brief in Hughes, just seems so strongly to rest on the idea that what lower courts should be doing is guessing or predicting. I mean, wasn't negative about it. Predicting how a prior uh, Supreme Court panel would have decided a new factual scenario. And, I, and once, you, once you take a step down that path, it does seem very at odds with the Supreme Court's uh, anti-predictive uh, reasoning for discouraging lower courts or prohibiting lower courts um, from engaging in anticipatory overruling. I want to change gears dramatically for our remaining minutes. All right. Okay. Can I do that? How many minutes? Uh, very few. O- only our listeners know. Okay. <laughs> That's right. It's in the future. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know right yeah. now. So, yeah. so I'm curious. You, you, uh, you say it uh, like your your back half of the paper or so is sort of you're going to theorize Marx, and I'm and I want to historicize Marx um, for a moment. Right. So, um, uh, you know, you make the comment that that Marx cites uh, Greg against Georgia, uh, and this is a Powell opinion. He's taking uh, what he did in Greg and, and doing it in Marx. Uh, yeah. So have you looked at the Lewis Powell papers on, on, in the Marx de- decision? I have, I have looked at them, yeah. Because um, I was tootling through them this morning. I love this. They're online. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, the Washington yeah. and Lee Law Library has, has digitized yep. a huge amount of the Powell papers. And, and so I was sort of tootling through the Powell papers file on Marx. And it's, you know, uh, and you've been through it, so you know, this uh, line about what to do with a fragmented opinion is there really from the first draft of the opinion, at least the first draft that's in the file, right? So there's a, yep. there's a draft opinion. It's a procurium opinion. At this point, it looks like it's not going to be a signed opinion. That happens later. Um, uh, but but it, is it your sense, looking at those papers, that the, that this was sort of a throwaway line? I mean, it it didn't look like it was something mm. that was viewed as a super serious step forward in how to think about something. You're you're saying that because there was no there were no memos or follow ups on that point in the it's yeah, just there I, from the beginning and, and it never changes. My, and that was is my that initial Im- yeah, it, yeah, that's true. It's there from the beginning and it never changes. And nor do the other justices comment on it. They do comment on some other things, right? Rehnquist wants a footnote about X, Y, or Z, and so he winds up joining, even though initially he okay. wasn't going to. So there's some discussion about something. But I went through this super fast, and so right. I, I was I wanted to get your more informed impression about um, you know, wh- whether you think in real time they viewed this as a significant development, because it goes dormant for a while and only gets mm-hmm. picked up again in the 80s, which is consistent with the notion of their not having realized they were doing anything particularly important. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is something that I'm still looking into, and so I can't pretend to have a, a conclusive answer to this question. I think that um, you might distinguish between uh, two different types of, of historical story here. One story is that the justices, somewhat unlike the briefing that they received, actually, felt like they had this available or salient rule of decision about precedent from this relatively recent uh, plurality ruling 
and Powell is involved in both. So Powell just kind of reaches for that. And that then, you know, you know, the, the waters move forward, things progress, it becomes the centerpiece of ultimately a full-blown published opinion that really, you know, as I try to argue, could have relied on a number of things. And maybe at some points you think they are relying on a number of things, but at the end of the day, it looks like it's really christening uh, what we now call the Marx rule. Yeah. So that, that's a kind of just kind of uh, path-dependent story. And I think you're right, it is consistent with the idea that it doesn't come up again for a little while. And I think you know there, there are stories like that that people tell about uh, other very widely cited cases, like like Chevron, for example. They didn't think that they were uh, creating this new framework that would dominate law reviews and cases for so long. <laughs> they thought they were doing maybe a maybe a modest synthesis that right. that that then got picked up by other people. So I think that is that is possible. I think that there is this other this other strand though that that I can't I can't prove, but I think is is at least contributing to this. Uh, at the moment that they were considering this, the retroactive, uh, oddly, uh, the retroactive effect of the decision in terms of how it would inform readings of Greg, I think was, was, was uh, I suspect, was on people's minds because Greg was a big deal. Right. And Greg, Greg, the, the legacy of Greg was continuing to be a big deal. Yep. And so, so I don't think that it was, uh, I don't think that it was the idea that by elevating that strand of Greg's because uh, because because by 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 creating something like the Marx rule uh, in the Greg's plurality, the Greg Greg's plurality is arguably promoting itself as binding. So I, I don't want to make it sound as though picking that up in the, in Marx itself w- was thought to be this watershed moment by by Powell or anyone else. But it does seem to me that that was that that I, let me go say, it would be surprising to me if if Powell and others in the building weren't aware of that implication. Fascinating. So uh, you and Scott Sunby should do some sort of panel at Washington and Lee in in celebration of of Justice Powell at some point, and the, and please just make sure they videotape it. <laughs> okay. Why are you not going to attend? A great idea. <laughs> you could attend in person. Oh, you're too. right. You're yeah. you're absolutely right. I could yeah. just drive up to Lexington, and it would be awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. This is great. Well, I'm so grateful to you guys for inviting me on the podcast, and uh, I'm uh, really grateful for all your thoughts as well. Yeah, this has been really, really fun, and and best of luck. Um, when is the argument? Uh, it's in a few weeks. It's at the end of March. Uh, I won't be able to make it myself, but uh, I'll be uh, I'll be tuning in for that show as well. I, I I fully expect a citation of this episode in the ultimate opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, l- l- listeners, you know, I'm sure there are people in in high places who can make it happen. So. Fingers crossed. Yeah, we 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 are on a first name basis with some of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Richard. This really has been terrific. Yeah, thanks a bunch. This is awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks again. Cheers.